Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Let's start off with an unpaid ad for something I've found useful. Cicero. That's at app.cicero.ly. Pretty lame fucking domain name, if I must say so. But it's a new, well-curated set of articles by thinkers who you can follow. I found three articles worth reading in five minutes, and two out of three were actually excellent, and the third wasn't terrible. And I'm picky as hell. So check it out app.cicero.ly. So now on to our show. Today's guest is Alexander Bard. Talk about a polymath, holy shit. Alexander's an author, a lecturer, an artist, a songwriter, a musician, a music producer, a TV personality, a religious and political activist, and one of the founders of the Synthiest Religious Movement. Quite a list of accomplishments there, and I'm sure he's not done. Hi, Alexander. Welcome to the Jim Rudd Show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you back. Uh, we had you on the show once before. Let's see if I can find put put it in my notes what show that was. But uh, if damn if I can fucking find it. It was probably the pre-corona version of you and me, and now we're doing the post-corona versions of Jim Rock and Alexander Bar today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, this is a continuation of a discussion that's been going on for a few months. Though I don't I don't think we need to really track and continue formally the previous conversation. The Game B movement put out a movie called called An Initiation to Game B. Alexander and some of his compatriots on the intellectual deep web mailing list, which I'm a member on, but I'm frankly too intimidated by the high intellectual level to participate very much. But I do like to read it from time to time. I had a whole bunch of commentary about it. A group of us went on the STOA, talked about it. Some of their group went on the STOA and talked about it. And then we had a meeting of the intellectual deep web and a couple of Game B folks, and we talked about it. And Alexander and I agreed, well, we didn't say nearly as much. A STOA is kind of a not a good long form format. You basically get a few minutes to talk, blah, blah. And both Alexander and I are famously long fucking winded. So we figured that we needed to have a real live podcast to get into this a little bit more deeply. So that hence we uh, meet again. The thing on the STOA was called Game B Meets the Dark Renaissance, worth checking out on YouTube. And as I promised when we agreed to do the podcast, I have read one of Alexander's books. I read a previous one about his network religion. I don't remember what the hell the name of it was. What was the name of that book? Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. Yeah, that was the subject of our previous podcast. It It was kind of fun. This book I thought was really good called Digital Libido, Sex, Power, and Violence in the Network Society. Though There was very little violence. I was disappointed. <laughs> the first chapter is a true tour de force. And the first half of the book I thought was really excellent. The second half, eh, but definitely worth a read. 
So I read the book, and we're not going to talk about the book per se, but but I'm going to have it in my pocket as background to help me understand a little bit more about what Alexander's getting at here. I will also note, just in passing, that from reading that book, I'm going to read another one of his books called The Netocrats. Uh, sounds fucking fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, The Netocrats is the first book I co-wrote with uh, John Sadequist. That was 22 years ago, the year 2000. So we first wrote three books that have been re-released as the Futurica trilogy. So those are the first three books, The Netocrats, The Global Empire, and The Body Machines. Then we began a new product 12 years ago, and we decided to write three books that together be released and called The Grand Narrative Trilogy. And we're really interested in the kind of stories that human beings tell about ourselves. And we even think this merits its own philosophical discipline. You know, you, you've heard a lot about deconstruction in the 20th century and all that. I think you're moving towards a specific philosophical discipline that we call narratology. So narratology is like uh, the logos of, of narratives. Like what kind of stories do we tell about each other and ourselves? And why are they different and why it's important to, to also hold them distinctly as different from one another because they serve different purposes. And this led us into, in a very Hegelian way, start with the future. So the first book, Synthesis and Creating God in the Internet Age, is built on a very simple assumption. So this assumption goes this way. Number one, woman gives birth to child. Number two, man envies woman for giving birth to child. Number three, man therefore gives birth to technology. Number four, since technology develops over time and children do not, they're equally stupid at best from one generation to the next. That means you go into number five, which is technology will one day defeat the child. So the historical link is that civilization as we know it is leading forward towards us creating some kind of machinery or technology that will either outdo us or at least at best complement us in such a way that life will take off in a whole new direction. And we think it's important to stress this, that, that we still have a say and we still have an influence on whatever kind of programs are built for AI and things like that. But also we've already built a machine that can kill us. We've already built the devil. It's called the atomic bomb. And therefore the date of August the 6th, 1945 is still the most important date in modern times because after that date, we know that we can blow ourselves up. And before we, extinct, we go extinct, maybe we should try to find another path. And one of your close friends, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and I, several years ago, agreed on working towards what we call the symbiotic intelligence. We don't like the term artificial intelligence because it, it some, somehow sounds excluded from humans, but actually technology is very inherent to us humans. And, and we're a homo technologicals today, so we're not homo sapiens any longer. So we, we think that a symbiotic intelligence we, we, is what we should talk about. How could we design that in such a way before it's too late that it actually works in the favor of humanity and ourselves? So that was Synthesis. That's the first book. Then the second book, Digital Libido, that you just plowed your way through, is about now. It's about the current state and the mess in the next to 50, 100 years we're going to have because the internet age is upon us. It's not at all what we thought it would be. All the institutions are fighting back. You know, it's messy. It's going to be even messier over the next 50 to 100 years. And this is also, of course, where we can go extinct through atomic warfare and all kinds of things. So that did a little bit of that's what's a warning. The third book we're writing now, it's going to come out next year, is actually a rewriting of history. As I say, we're Hegelians. We do everything in the opposite order. And that's a book called Process and Event. And that's the one I'm working on at the moment with Sedekvist to complete the trilogy. And that's a book where we rewrite the history of ideas and we make some radical shifts. We, for example, 
argue that all the important ideas to humanity actually occurred already during the Bronze Age. We invented civilization during the Bronze Age. We set the conditions for it. We haven't really improved on it, except that we at best have created technologies that make, e- make it easier for us to, to hold large populations you know, contained. That's essentially what civilization is. So that's, that's me and Sedekist, the Grand Narrative Trilogy. Yeah, I look forward to reading that book. As I said, for, as I read Digital Libido, I'm also writing a book, my first one. It will be a introduction to Game B. And I have been- It's about time. Jim Rutt's finally becoming an author. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. That, yeah. I'm working very hard on it. And I have way too much material, and I have a goal of keeping it to 270 pages for arcane reasons. And one of the questions is, how much in history of game A to include? And actually, reading Digital Libido encouraged me to think really seriously about history, because you pointed out the power of histography and the power of being allowed to reinterpret the past, right? Exactly. That, that That's what we write about narratology. So the logos is there. The logos is actually what actually happened. This is the, the, the truth as a fact. Like that, That's the logos. But the mythos is how we then tell the story about that, include ourselves in it. We cannot write a story about ourselves just with zeros and ones. We can't write a story about ourselves just with facts in it. We have to imagine what it's like to be human. We have, we have to extend our fantasy way beyond just numbers. And that's exactly why the mythos has to be retold because it is invented and it's then you know, it's projected onto ourselves, it's projected onto our history, it's also projected onto our fantasies about the future. And that's why if you're writing this game B, game A, you're talking about two different mythoses, you're putting them up against each other. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, I even propose that the, the difference between the game A and the game B, if you just put it down to two words, is that game A was an idea that you could infinitely exploit the world humans were living in. And reality, in reality, already in the netocrats 22 years ago, we proposed the opposite of the exploitation. There wasn't a word for it. We called it imploitation. And imploitation is essentially that you cannot use a resource and yet, you know, unless you put it back again. <laughs> you know, it's like you cannot exploit the world endlessly because then the world goes, goes down with you. So for that to occur, which any farmer has known for the last 5,000 years, to need to exploit the planet. And imploitation is the word we use for that. And for me, the great thing with Game B is that Game B basically puts a mythos out that says imploitation is first principle. I think you agree with me on that one. And it's a great word to use. And it's the, I haven't used the word, but I did pick it up in the book and I'm going to kind of play with it and see if I like it. Because I do think that you were right, you know, and I and more and more I've been stressing the good things that came from game A. You know, in my own mythology, I tend to focus on the period from about 1700 forward where three things came together to invent the modern world, which are limited government during the Glorious Revolution, 1688 in England, the invention of science basically across the 17th century, Boyle and Newton and that whole crew and a bunch of others, Descartes, though Descartes led us down some wrong roads, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, and perhaps very very importantly, the invention of modern finance in 1694 with the invention of the Bank of England. But when you look back at the world in 1700, what was it like? The population of the world was how big? Oh, it was a billion or something at most. I mean, Less, it's 8 billion, 650 million. There you go. 
And 50% of children died by the time they were five. Most people lived in houses with dirt floors, no windows in the temperate zones. Most of them had respiratory infections all winter from defective fireplaces and, again, no windows. Life was not great. The deal to go, to go from forager to agriculturalist had turned out to be kind of a losing bet for most people. But when these three things came together, and a few other things, but I think those three were the enablers, the world suddenly took off. Population grew from 650 to 8 billion in remarkably short period of time. And everything we've been we've created, remember 1700, there really wasn't much use even of fossil fuels. The Industrial Revolution hadn't happened. Even clothing was essentially a spinning wheel and a hand loom in somebody's cottage, right? And how fast we've come. And that was all good. I mean, you know, shit, I would, I would vote for game A just for modern dentistry, right? <laughs> and, you know, if you look at the history of teeth, ugh. But to your point, the fundamental attribute of game A, it was not designed with any breaks. It was designed, it's inner loop, which is finance, I argue, and particularly short-term money-on-money return is the parasite that we refer to indirectly in the Game B film. Oh, by the way, the name of the Game B film is an initiation to game tilde B film, and you can find a link to it at gamebfilm.org. But anyway, this inner parasite of money-on-money return uh, doesn't have any breaks and, in fact, pushes always for exponential growth. There's some reasons why if it doesn't exponentially growth, it will die. And yet, to your point, here we are living in a finite world. Hmm, doesn't take a genius to realize you can't exponentially grow forever in a finite world. God damn it. No, but you, you got it. You nailed it because we got the printing press in 40 and 50, and I'm a huge fan of Marshall McLuhan. I think that's the revolution. The revolution happened already in 1450. And then, you know, the Europeans got connected with America, not conquered it, in, in the 1490s. And we got the world as we know it today. And this explosion sets in about two to 300 years later when literacy has actually, you know, conquered the world more or less. And at least the elites all know how to read, write, and count. And if you know how to read, write, and count, you're way more powerful than if you're illiterate. Napoleon was the first guy who actually created the whole army where everybody could read, write, and count. And he, he crushed everybody because of it. And, and Hegel wrote about this in the early 19th century, the power of being the king of the new paradigm. Hegel understood this firmly. And I think the printing press and the fact the Europeans went across the sea and, and from going from marginal in the world to becoming the dominant fact in the world, they saw no end to their success. And even today, you know, it's still this idea that we should conquer outer space and move to other planets and all these wild ideas. I tell Elon Musk that, If you want to go to Mars, why don't you go to Siberia? You know, you can have Siberia to yourself. It's warmer, less radiation. It's all yours. Go there, you know, because because going to Mars is another one of these sort of exploitative ideas that we should conquer the universe. When in reality, we haven't even fixed the planet we live on. And all we're going to do to go somewhere else just to repeat the mistakes. Ah, I don't know about that one. Now, it's interesting. I don't think Mars is the right place for a bunch of technical reasons initially. Asteroids and comets. Put an asteroid and a comet together and you have everything you need. But I will say that I do think that we that in the longer term, and it may be 10,000 years or more, we should think about the universe. And here's why. At least until we answer the Fermi paradox question. You know, you're familiar with the Fermi paradox. It comes from Los Absolutely. Alamos. 
Yeah. yeah. Where are, the, are there other civilizations out there? And when I was a 12 or 13 year old kind of technophile kid, I would have said, oh, sure, got to be thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilizations, probably in our galaxy alone. Hell, just read Heinlein and Asimov. We know they're out there. Right? And of course, now it's not clear. And there's some, been some great writing and thinking about it. And I'm actually now completely agnostic. And it is certainly possible, possible that humanity is the first and only general intelligence in the universe. Yes, I agree. I agree. Uh, and that's if you start doing transfinite mathematics rather than doing the traditional form of mathematics, you realize that the world we live in right now on this planet could be absolutely unique. It doesn't matter how many other planets you find out there are solar systems. But I, to, to, our first disagreement or friendly disagreement then is that I, I think it's going to be the AI with some bacteria that conquers outer space and not humans. And that they will probably leave us to ourselves, hopefully here as a kind of human zoo on this planet, have fun with each other. Because we are breeding less than we used to. We're going to have a peak population of the world before you and I die. And after that, there's going to be fewer humans around. And I think all for the better, because if you're going to have an exploitative rather than exploitative world, they, they should hopefully be fewer of us, but we can stay around for much longer. But I think at the end of the day, it's, 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 this is a narrative thing. It's like, it's like, yeah, you, you like to get in contact with other worlds, but you know, when the Europeans came over to America, they were lucky. They only got syphilis back from the Indians, you know, from the Native Americans. But the Native Americans went, you know, 90% of them died just due to contact with the foreign civilization. So that was lucky. You know, colliding with another civilization could mean that we go extinct. So, so let's be careful with those kind of hopes to begin with. Yeah. And of course, that is key that you know, why it's really stupid for us to be doing broadcasting to the stars, which some people advocate for. We should be listening and probing because, as they say, there may be a, the, the reason that we're not hearing anything is because of the dark forest effect, right? You don't want to make a lot of noise in the forest at night or the uh, the big predator will come and get you. Yeah. And we, we also reveal how stupid we are, which doesn't make it any better. So there you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, humans are just barely generally intelligent. And I think my favorite rut quote is humans are to the first order the stupidest possible general intelligence. <laughs> I totally agree. I'm totally agree. We're first over the line. And by evolution, and my nature is seldom profligate in her gifts. And so why would we expect to be? And any knowledge at all of cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, it's just incredibly obvious how far and stupid we are. A working memory size of five plus or minus two or seven plus or minus two, whatever the hell it is. You know, very low fidelity memories. You know, a $1 calculator can do math a shitload better than you or I can. You know, we are just barely across some bright line, but we are across it, which, which does matter. And the algorithms of the blockchains have arrived to help us. Thank God. Well, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and they may or may not help. But, you know, more to the point, alphabet. But the invention of the alphabet and Roman numbers, uh, Arabic numbers, I guess. we Actually, you should say Arab, Hindu-Arabic numbers and the zero that came with them are probably way more important than either the printing press or the internet in terms of us being able to do input-output to exterior devices to help our very, very feeble cognitions. But I, let's go back to a little bit uh, McLuhan. And I, I run into McLuhanists a lot. There's quite a few of them in the Game B world. And I would say I am a semi-McLuhanist. I do think that these fundamental information technologies are important, but I would put a very different lens on it in, in that 
they didn't bring into being game A, let's say the printing press, but they provided a substrate in which new things could evolve. And some of, and so I call it a portal into a new world of opportunity. And some of the things that evolved were science, self-governance, modern finance, but there was a bunch of others as well. Uh, it's very similar to the Cambrian explosion that occurred 500 million years ago. Great Jim Rutt show episode, by the way, with Doug Irwin, one of the leading scholars on the Cambrian explosion. You can look it up. Where some changes in the biochemistry that was available to life very suddenly allowed multicellular animals of the sort that we are and within about five to 10 million years, which is an eye blink in evolutionary time, all the phyla minus one, and that one turns out to be very obscure and not important. All the main phyla of animal life came into existence in this tiny, short little window. So I would suggest that the McClunas perspective is somewhat overstated and that it, what it really is, is a portal which allows which enables other things to occur and that those things, the ones that happen to occur, and they are contingent, right? You know, what I like to point out that the Bank of England in particular was a very historically contingent result, could have easily happened very differently. The Glorious Revolution, very contingent on all kinds of things. The fact that Americans speak English rather than German was highly contingent. Exactly. You could have a German as your language right now. You and I could sit here and talk in German. I'd be forced to speak German with you because I have to talk to you because you're an American and you rule the world. Yeah, and you know, frankly, you know, William, William the Conqueror's <laughs> invasion uh, was also very contingent. If Harold Godwin hadn't been in a fight at Stamford Bridge three weeks before, probably a fair chance that the uh, English would have defeated William there at Hastings. And you know, so the world is full of contingency. But anyway, let's let's now get back to where we kind of how we came to this, which is talking about Game B and other ways of thinking about the way forward. And, you know, what are, what are some traps to avoid? You know, I think one that we strongly agree with, and I saw you ranting quite eloquently in the book about it, is avoiding utopian thinking. And I was also uh, happy to see you piss on my favorite pissy, Rousseau. Yeah, there we go. Well, the thing <laughs> is that I, I think I always make a comparative study between Eastern and Western philosophy. I was one of the first philosophers who realized that we can't start with the Greeks. That would be embarrassing to start with the Greeks all over again. I mean, you can't think that the Westerners invented philosophy. But by the word philosophia in Greek was originally the Persian Mazda Yasna, which is about 1,500 to 2,000 years older than philosophia. So, so clearly, philosophy started in the East, and then it's developed with different schools. You have Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Persian philosophy. And we then have the Middle East and in Europe and America, and we call it the West. I would say that the problem with Western philosophy is that it, it got stuck with the sort of Gnostic dualism, which both Christianity and Islam are guilty of. They're guilty of promising us the afterlife. They're guilty of, of finding the cheap way out. They're guilty of being the perfect engines for feudal tyranny. Even, even Putin today claims to be an Orthodox Christian, but even Putin in Russia is no different than the Islamists in the Middle East, because the, the Islamic State and Putin are very similar, you know, in their claims. And I think the problem here is that we need to get rid of the dualism. And starting with Spinoza, we have to remember that Spinoza was the first Western philosopher. He was, he was Moroccan Jewish originally. And, and he broke with that tradition and said, no, everything in the world is dependent on everything else. And you and I do system and complexity theory. It starts with Spinoza, right? It starts with the modest worldview. And finally, we start to make a break with Christianity and Islam and the idea that there's dualism out there. Rather, everything is dependent on everything else means we live in a modest world. Even mind and matter are expressions of the same world. So 
I think that's an important insight. It's really the great part of the Enlightenment. It, was, it wasn't Descartes, as you mentioned. It was really Spinoza and Leibniz, who were the great thinkers of the 17th century that I love. Leading on to Hegel and Nietzsche, and guys like McLuhan and later, they just, they just put the spies onto the kind of work that I do. I need, I need McLuhan because he's lacking in Hegel and Nietzsche. That's why I use him. But overall, the modernist worldview that Hegel and Nietzsche then represent fully in the 19th century in Germany, actually is totally opposed to the idea of utopia and dystopia. Because the ideas of utopia or dystopia, for that matter, come out of Islam and Christianity, and they start with a dualist worldview. Now, if you separate the world, the physical world, from spirit, if you say spirit is an entirely different substance from the physical world, if you say there are at least two worlds, you haven't figured out how they communicate with one another. This was, of course, the problem with Descartes, is that Descartes couldn't respond to the fact, if mind and matter are two different things, well, how the heck do they communicate with, that, with each other? You must have a third substance then to communicate, right? Well, he made up a bullshit answer, which was the pineal gland, right? <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly, which is great. You know, I think because at least it took something you couldn't, you couldn't check, right? Yeah, it's exactly. like the Catholic Church, every time you expose them to their fraud and say that, where is God? They just say, oh, go this further away. He's just further <laughs> away or further away or further away. You know, and, and until you discover that he's so fucking further away, Way that he's just further away, period. He's not even there. So the 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 monist worldview is the radical break that we do in the West, where we kind of become aligned with Eastern philosophy. Because the greatness of Eastern philosophy is that it doesn't compromise on, on the monist worldview. And now we can start doing philosophy, Eastern and Western combined. And I always read the two philosophies through the eyes of this. And when I worked in Japan and Korea, I lived in Zen temples and, you know, in Japan and, and Zeon monasteries in Korea. I, I'm a practitioner of Zeon and Zen. And, and I realized that they were protopians. They, they weren't utopian or dystopian. They didn't get the idea. They thought it was really weird. Why would we go towards a perfect world, according to Plato? Because a world that would be perfect cannot have change. Because if it changes, it becomes imperfect. Therefore, it must be a dead world. It's like if the world was just a still picture and nothing moved, okay? This is Plato's world. And, and the problem with Western thinking from Plato and his dualism onwards that we got stuck with the dualism. And that's exactly when you and I are now doing system and complexity theory, we can talk directly with the Japanese. We can talk directly with the Koreans because they are protopians. And protopianism is the trick here. Protopianism means that I tear down the world and I rebuild it every day and I try to slightly improve on its construction. So that's how you build really good engineering, for example. You tear it apart and then you rebuild it. And while you're rebuilding it, you're checking out if you could do it maybe slightly different than the last time you built it and improve on the quality or make it slightly cheaper. And, and by doing that, you improve on the product. Yeah, sometimes you make leaps, right? Yeah, you can, you, can, you can make leaps, but they're often leaps in hindsight because it's something that just was very remarkable a certain Tuesday 13 years ago because the world is contingent, turns out to be dramatic innovation 13 years later. But that's, that's the fun of it, the fun of it. But to have a protopian attitude now means that you say, I think you and I agree on this one, we must kill the utopianism and the dystopianism. We must get those two ideas out of the way. We're not going towards a horrible world because that leads to Armageddon. And if the Muslims and the Christians have their say, they will have that final Armageddon with atomic bombs between the Middle East and Europe or whatever eventually. We must stop them from doing that because we must call them out 
that they're actually creating a false narrative leading to that Armageddon, which is the dystopian worldview, but equally the utopian worldview, which is like me. Just study Paul Pot, for God's sake. Exactly. Paul, <laughs> Paul Pot wrote his PhD at Sorbonne in 1967. It's publicly available. Read Paul Pot's PhD. It was not on Karl Marx, who I defend. It was on Rousseau. And then he went home to Cambodia and killed two million of his own countrymen. And he started by killing everybody who wore glasses like you and me because he wanted to kill anybody was more intelligent than himself. We call this character the boy pharaoh in our work. He's a really dangerous character. Hitler was the same way. Think of a boy who's not a man, and because he's a boy and he is narcissistic, he wants to be both the priest and the king at the same time. He's none of them. And therefore, he takes on the world. And of course, he loves Rousseau and ideas like the noble savage. Like if, if the world hadn't gone corrupt, then everything would be perfect, right? But because the world has been corrupted and I'm here to save the world from itself and uncorrupt the world. That's what a boy of fire always believes. And that's why Rousseau is such a dangerous thinker. Yeah. And I, when I, I'm, as people know, listen to my show, I am a real fanboy for the Enlightenment, though I draw a distinction between the Voltaire Diderot branch of the Enlightenment and the, which led to the Scottish Enlightenment, the English Enlightenment, and a bunch of other useful things. And then the Rousseau branch, which led to, you know, various forms of horror in the 20th century, in the 19th century and the 20th century, uh, including both Nazism and Marxist-Leninism, and then particularly lovely versions like Khmer Rouge, right? You can track them all back to Rousseau. And again, it's this utopianism. In fact, this book I'm writing, yeah, I've, I've already written the introduction. One of the things I have in there is, if anybody quotes what's in this book as catechism, tell them Jim Rutt will kick their ass, right? <laughs> I think that's just so important. And we push continuously that Game B, at least at this stage, and probably for a very long time, is a exploration of the high-dimensional design space of how to live. And further, it's an exploration in parallel. We expect multiple experiments to happen in what we call proto-Bs, small Dunbar number size, or maybe two X Dunbar number size communities that will be quite different. They will have a coherence, which is that we all agree that we must live within balance with mother nature and in fact, pay back some of our debts, regenerative theory, and that we must not use money on money return as the inner engine and, and metric of all values. And many of us agree that something like self-actualization, we may disagree about this one, is a very important part of why we build these civilizations. Jim, I always knew you were a communist. I'm glad you're I coming am. out because I'm a communist too. I am. I'm a I'm local not a socialist. I knew socialism would fail, right? But I defend communism as an idea. As long as it's voluntary, I think it's a fantastic idea. Personally, I, yeah, personally, I'm really involved with Burning Man and all the 250 different Burning Man spinoffs around the world. We got one here in Northern Europe called the Borderland. I'm deeply immersed in this culture. And I think it's a good start to go where somewhere for eight days and at least try to experiment in what it would be like to live in a communist protopia. That's what I call it. Like, so have a communist protopia. And, and, and I, think, I think that's a good start because then you can extend those eight days to two weeks and three weeks, and then you can extend it even further eventually. Like, would this be a lifestyle that would be sustainable? And would it be okay with you? Would you like to take part in this? And that's what I call voluntary communism. Yeah, in fact, we've come up some, Peter Wang, one of our Game B folks, very interesting guy, came up with a very nice, simplistic way to frame the 
the trade that we're proposing, which is we go back to a 1700. We're now burning per capita 10 times the energy or consuming 10 times the energy. We have 10 times as many people and each person is consuming 10 times the energy across the world. And that includes, you know, cattle herders in East Africa. And so we have to cut back our energy consumption by about two thirds. So cut by three. But or at least produce energy differently than we do today. Well, and right now, and in the future, new technologies may allow us to have even more energy. But right now, to not cook the planet, we need to cut back our energy consumption by on the order of two-thirds. But if we're taking the Davos man approach, we're just going to pound on the people and say less, less, less. That isn't going to work. I mean, just look at the yellow jacket movement in France, a relatively modest increase in diesel taxes. They almost overthrew the French government. You know, if you let Davos man just say, oh, we have to meet the 17 sustainable blah, blahs, pound, 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 we're going to end up with is fascist dictatorships all over the West. So the game B hypothesis is while we take less inputs, we actually increase human well-being. And just for shits and grins, Peter, throughout the number three, we're going to have our well-being go up by a factor of three, while the material inputs come down by a factor of three. So it's a the three-three transition. And you know, as we've gotten down to starting to design these proto-bees, it looks like it's quite possible where, you know, if you invest in the commons, you invest in community in something that's, you know, feels a lot like voluntary communism. And you have built in holidays, one a week, one a month, one a quarter and one a year. You have singing and exercising together to, you know, tune up our serotonin and get us away from our addictions to dopamine, et cetera. We may actually be able to have a subjective sense of well-being, what the Hansi Freinach called state, which is considerably higher than we have in our very intense game A. Yeah. And the thing is that even if only some of the ideas work, they will then be implemented. You know, you can do your own tech startup and implement something that improves on the world and you can make your own important contribution to global protopianism by doing it. So what's important here is that if you put the hope out there, if you put, you put the vision out there, and you set forward and say, we're going to create this community. It's a bit like an exodus. I talk about exodologists in my work all the time. So the exodology here is that we're going to leave Egypt and walk towards the promised land, which means that we're basically going to leave one paradigm. We can call it the paradigm of exploitation. We're going to move towards the paradigm of employation. And as we're doing that, we can reimagine the world. We can reimagine human life. We can reimagine society and see what we can do when we do so. The only thing that we watch out for here is, of course, that we have to make these things voluntary. And that's why I talk about membranes. And the membrane here is that you've got to be able to walk in and walk out of these systems. And that's why I call it voluntary communism. Because otherwise, you do get the totalitarian perspective. The totalitarian one is the one that says you must be included in the model. You have no way to opt out. And that's exactly when you go totalitarian. And that's the problem, for example, when you do urban planning, is that a lot of urban planners don't see the Plato inside themselves. I've done urban planning myself quite a lot. and They don't see that actually they become the little boy Pharaoh who wants to dictate how people are going to live their lives. And they create places that look great from outer space, if you looked at them, but actually on a Tuesday afternoon, they're horrible neighborhoods to live in for human beings. And that's why it often pays off to allow just the form to be there. For example, if you do really good architecture these days, the principle is often that you, you don't put the pathway through the lawn when you design it. You just put a lawn there. 
And then see where the people walk. Exactly. And they then you let the people decide where they want to walk. And that's where you build the pathway the next year. And, and that's the kind of, it's called Deleuzean architecture after Deleuze, the, 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 the French philosopher. And that's the way you must do as many things as possible. Again, because that's the protopian approach towards architecture and urban planning rather than the utopian approach. So what, what I, I would like to be careful about here is that when, when guys are saying, yeah, let's design, you know, the future, let's design a certain community here. Well, you can design any community you like, as long as you've got an open membrane, as long as people can join that community, but they're also perfectly happy to walk out if it doesn't suit the right. If they have that pos possibility, then you basically presented something where your model for how to create the future competes with other models, and that's the way forward. Anything else would be totalitarian, really dangerous. And I see a lot of environmentalists today they're going more desperate about their different causes and they're going a bit religious about it. And what they're doing is that they go for a totalitarian approach. And I think that's a dead end. That's Davos man, right? Yeah. That's Davos man, yeah. And Davos man, of course, like all these guys, they're hypocrites. Davos man says that you and I can't drive our car on gas any longer, so we change to electric engine cars. And then they go on about the electric engine while they're flying in their private jets in and out of Davos. I tell you the fuck what. Anyone, you know, truthfully, first rut reformed, ground all the private jets, right? <laughs> you know, I'll confess, I'm a, I'm a dude with two nickels to rub together. I used to have a membership in one of those private jet thingies. And it's funny, when I was doing the due diligence on it, I called one of the guys up from the company, said, well, what, do you like it? And this was, I love this, his response to the question, do you like it? He goes, it's like champagne and cocaine for breakfast. The question isn't, do you like it? It's how do you not do it every day, right? And so I flew around private jets like once or twice a year, but about 16 years ago, I concluded they were fundamentally immoral. I took my card and I tore it up. And I think that, you know, that is one of the great examples of hypocrisy. But let's go back to some of the things you talked about before, the idea of urban planning. And we talked about that we're both complexity people and in uh, Santa Fe Institute complexity science style, at least. One of the early urban planners we point to as being a proto-complexitarian is Jane Jacobs and her book, The Death and Life of Great America cities. She was the one who saved. Oh, yeah. I read her. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She saved a Greenwich village from being turned into a freeway running through it and high rise apartments. Right. And she believes in the organic, the, you know, the emergent, the nudging. Right. And that's exactly how we see proto bees being is that they're not going to be Brasilia. Have you ever seen pictures of Brasilia? The I've been to Brasilia. It's fascinating. Is it horrifying? Is it as horrifying as it well, looks? Well, it isn't because the people who live there kind of protested against the architecture by living in a way that's completely contradictory to what was the ambition of the architect. So I think Brasilia is a perfect example of utopian architecture that didn't work, but it didn't go dystopian. People just figured out their way to get around those crazy buildings, you know, that were dead. And, and they created life in between. They, you know, even the shanty towns between the skyscrapers are much more lively and fun and interesting than the skyscrapers themselves. And that's what happens when you do utopian architecture. Yeah. And the other, the other thing I'd like to point to, you talked about membranes. And we talk about membranes a lot in Game B and that we think of Game B organizing itself as a whole series of membranes, including ones that include other membranes, and then protocols that allow them to cooperate. Now, I'd point to a book 
little known book. It was John Holland, the inventor of the genetic algorithms last book. And I would say he probably didn't quite finish it because the copy editing isn't great. It's called Signals and Boundaries, Building Blocks for Complex Adaptive Systems. And it's a great book that gets you thinking. In fact, that's where the thinking came from for the Game B approach of membranes and protocols from that book. And I, I just pulled it up on Amazon. I purchased it twice. Holy shit. So I must really like it. Right? <laughs> a friend took the first copy. Yeah. I think I sent it to Jordan Hall, actually. But so, you know, again, 100% in agreement that thinking about membranes uh, that are semi-permeable, and this is important because in life, our membranes are semi-permeable. They're- That's what we call membranes. Otherwise, they would be walls. But yeah, they're not, exactly. they're membranes, yeah. So we talk about membranics as well, which is a great term for how membranes operate. So you can study anything from organisms to, you know, it, it can be na- any natural system as well. There, there's so many ways that nature creates membranes. And membranes are by nature something that the, where information can walk in and out of the system. But it takes an effort to get in and it takes an effort to get out. And that's exactly the point. And it's an interesting design point, right? That you can design the membrane and semi-permeability and they can differ in the two different directions, like just like human membranes do. Things that can go out can't come in, right? And, and then the things inside essentially can decide what the membrane is. For instance, one of the things we talk about a fair bit in, in Game B land is we are not ludites. We do not believe that we can abandon technology, but we do believe we should have considerably more discernment about what technology we allow into our our lives. And one could imagine a proto-B having a membrane that says no smartphones, for instance, right? And if you want to live in this proto-B, then you turn your smartphone in at the gate. And when you leave, you get it back. Because we we, we have determined as this particular community, and by, just like the Mennonites and the Amish, by the way, these would be at the community level, even though you think of the Mennonites and the Amish as being homogeneous, they're not. Every pod of them has different technology roles. So I would see each proto B as well. Some of them may choose new smartphones, right? Or you know, there may be- Or at least start with a smartphone-free weekend. A lot of people do these days, and that's a good idea. Yeah, I really did six idea. months. I got rid of my smartphone. And have an age months. limit for when you give a smartphone to your kid. You know, the kids don't need them. Yeah, that's, there, there's, there's a perfect example. And this is a really important point of why building game B is so important. I have a granddaughter. It'll be two here in another month or so. And my daughter is a, and her husband are very aware of the dangers of too much online too early. In fact, my son-in-law had a Facebook account for about a week and then deleted it and has never been on social media otherwise, right? Which is pretty impressive for a millennial. Yeah, I'm sitting at the other end of that. I'm working with psychiatry over here in Scandinavia where I live. And we got these 20-year-old girls that come in and they scroll on Instagram 10 hours a day and they're completely addicted and their lives are ruined. You know, it, it, it's just, these are, these are addiction tools as much as they're helpful tools. And, and this is the problem. All technology is a pharmacon. A good place to start with technology is to call it the pharmacon. A pharmacon, a perfect example of that is that it's both an atomic bomb that can blow up and kill humanity. And it can also be the nuclear power, the fusion nuclear power of the future that could save humanity. You know, and all technologies are pharmacons. They're neutral. What we then do with them is up to us. And what we do with technologies determines whether technology is a constructive force for good or destructive force for bad. Well, let me continue this story that gets to this point, which is, and I said, these are, you know, they, they are thoughtful, discerning people about technology and control their own use of technology. So here they have a two-year-old, so it's not yet an issue. But my daughter posed the question, what happens when she's seven? 
and all of her friends have smartphones, or, or even let's just say her best friend shows up with a smartphone, and the other kids are using smartphones to coordinate their social lives and all that. How in the hell do you say no to your kid in a traditional suburban setting? be really, really hard, and it would come at great cost to the kid. On the other hand, if you're living in a community that has a normative value that you would no more give a seven-year-old a smartphone than you'd give seven-year-old cigarettes, and that you know, at a minimum, you know, nobody gets a smartphone until they're 18, it's way easier for the parents to you know, have such rules and enforce them with their children because the children don't aren't forced to pay an externality's cost for the parental decision. Yeah, but that, it, these are all dialectical processes. So I always remind people that as a philosopher of the internet age, I'm, I'm always reminding them we're just at the beginning of this whole new age. And, and just you're just beginning to understand what it means that the entire planet is connected in real time. That, that's, that, that's what's so striking about the age we live in. But I'm saying that, of course, you're going to have enormous amounts of problems. And we have to encounter them. And then eventually we'll have a debate about it. And then some people will, will walk forward and say, well, we're going to change our behaviors here accordingly. We're not going to allow our kids to have that. So maybe the entire community bans the smartphone for the kids at least until they're 15 or something. And that takes root. It turns out those kids become more successful. They're smarter. They're happier, whatever. Then it becomes a standard. But what it takes at all times, I'm a bit of a Marxist there. What it takes at all times is for somebody to dare to do the new and to do it properly and then show everybody else that this was a better model. This was a better way of handling things. And once that's done, the one thing human beings are really good at is mimicking each other. Once somebody's got a model for how things work, then everybody else can mimic that model. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, now we're convinced. Now we pay the price. Now we take the fight with the kids or whatever to implement a model that actually works better. And before that happens, we are always in an anarchy. So when new technologies disrupt the world, it results in an anarchy. The anarchy then shifts into what's called a plurarchy. Naturally, a few people start doing the right thing that at least benefits them. So they will use the technology to their benefit. That's called a plurarchic. And when the plurarchic happens, the plurarchists become the leaders and they start to implement an order to the chaos. So we get out of the original anarchy that's caused by technological disruption. We get a plurarchy with a few guys who try to figure out what, how they could at least use the technology to their advantage. They get a following. So they certainly have certain networks that become more successful. That's exactly how an elite is created in a society. But the great, I don't mind that there's an elite in a society because the elite that starts implementing the new technology properly and figured out how to use it to the advantage of mankind can then be mimicked by everybody else. So the trick is to actually go to the elite quickly and try to embrace the elite first because then we have the model others can mimic. And that's exactly what you're doing in your game B, in your work. You're doing exactly like you're creating models. And if a model is successful, it can be mimicked. Yeah. And, and specifically, we're creating membranes that allow it to be easier for a model to cohere, right? To my point that, you know, for instance, banning smartphones for seven-year-olds, really difficult when all the other seven-year-olds have them. But if you're inside a membrane in which there's a cultural norm that says no, it's actually quite easy. So it's in the same way life. I just had a very interesting conversation. He's going to be on the show in the fall uh, with a fellow working in the area of origin of life. And you know, he's of the school that believes the membranes came first, even before the biochemistry and certainly long before the genetics. And uh, so the membrane, semi-permeable membranes are really an important part of this 
this experiment in parallel across high dimensional design space. Exactly. And let's, let's use the word gated community here, retake it and own it. Because the gated communities we know so far have either been dystopian, like we, we build a wall around ourselves to protect ourselves from a threatening outside world, or they've been utopian, very often religious gated communities that we believe in a certain religion and we're going to practice it, you know, with, with affirmation. Therefore, we, 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 we exclude ourselves from the outside world. But if you think of a protopian gated community, that's exactly what you're proposing here. You're saying that we don't have a problem with the outside world. That's not the thing. We're going to have a certain set of rules inside our membrane. So we're going to create a certain protocol of membranics, and we're going to implement it inside the membrane. And therefore, we'll see what kind of model that develops into. And if it works, we know it works because the protocol made it work. And therefore, the protocol can be mimicked and used by others. And I think that's the way forward. And I think yeah, to, to retake the word gated community, which is kind of edgy today, and say that there's nothing wrong with gated communities. The problem is that they're either dystopian or utopian today, when in reality it should be protopian. It should be about re-innovating the world every day and, and create new process of optimization constantly. I like that. I'm uh, not to consider. I mean, as you say, gated community's got such a negative veil. It's a bunch of, you know, douchebags with their Porsches and what have you. But yeah, I'll, I'll ponder whether it's worth retaking or not, or whether we just jump directly to membranes and protocols. Membranes and protocols are awful, you know, nerdy. They're not going to appeal to the mass market. But you know, the law, a law is a protocol. The law is, is, is once you're inside a territory and that territory has a certain law, you have agreed on following that law. And if you don't follow it, you better watch out. Right, so, so protocol is basically standards. What's great about the word protocol rather than law is that protocol is, is, is supposed to be copied and it's supposed to be shared. So we got a certain protocol here in this territory. Why don't you have the same protocol in your territory? You can gladly copy it if you like because then communication between our two membranes becomes a lot easier. We have a standard and standards are incredibly good for creating new great technologies. And one of the beauties of protocols is you can have multiple of them, right, for different purposes, right? You can have a protocol about the uh, social discernment of technology. You can have a protocol for coordinating work. You can have a protocol for coordinating ideas, et cetera. And so that's another beauty of protocols is that you can have ensembles of protocols rather than just- And they're very AI friendly. The one thing AI is going to help us with exactly to keep track of the protocol. So we don't need to worry about many protocols being around. If they're being creative and constructive, we can have many of them because AI will help us really figure that out. Well, we're coming up pretty close to our time here, but I'd like to jump into a couple of topics that in the STOA that we were talking about earlier, you and your associates specifically pointed out that, hey, these goddamn game B-boys aren't addressing, boys and girls, I should say, and that is sex and violence. If you were going to be on our advisory team for designing an early game B, what would you say we should be thinking about with respect to sex and violence? Well, I would say the opposition here between Game B and Dark Renaissance was a designed opposition. And I, I set it up with Peter Lindbergh at the Stoa, and I said, why don't we try to create an attack on Game B coming from the Dark Renaissance? It was Raven Conley, Owen Cox, Catalast, and me. And we're all on the Intellectual Deep Web. And you know, the Intellectual Deep Web has a lot of Game B defenders. So that's actually a, sort of a neutral forum. Yeah? We call it the Dark Renaissance. The dark renaissance is not actually an opposition. The dark renaissance is kind of a, think of it like a very gothic, 
artist, artistically driven movement, which is more interested in the art of the future rather than in solving the social problems of the future. So it's actually complementing Game B, for God's sake. I mean, the point is that if, if Game B is great as an idea, and I think you and I agree, and we're certainly coming out as communists here today, another bad word we're going to turn around and make a beautiful word again, because it should be. If you're coming out as communists of the future, both you and I here, I would say that think of dark renaissance as like, the dark underbelly of game B. Like, where do you get all the energy, the sort of the bloody energy from to create the really nasty splatter movies of the game B societies or something like that? But that, I think the term dark renaissance, which I think Edward Bywater and Ray Conley came up with, I think is a great term. Dark renaissance is a great term because it's already happening. There's a lot of that going on today in the undercurrents of the current state. And the 2020s is going to be roaring and difficult, and we're going to have a huge recession, you know, the next few years. And it's, it's, it's going to be important now to really make a distinction between what's important to us and what's not that important any longer. A lot of flack and a lot of hype is going to go out the window the next few years. Now, I find it incredibly refreshing. But I think at the end of the day, I think dark renaissance is like, think of it like a dark artistic uh, underbelly to the game B prod, and I think you figure it out. Let's talk specifically about sex. Right. What do you think some of the issues are going to be in terms of because as you guys very eloquently pointed out in both the Stoa and in your book, you know, uh, sex and the sublimation of sex are some of the key things from which civilizations are constructed. Yes. So sex is never harmonious or balanced. Let's just get that out the window. And what I like about that, you and I are both complexity theorists, but what I do is that I always add Hegel to complexity theory, because how you create solutions when you are confronted with complexities, is you create temporary solutions through a dialectical process. That's what Hegel is really brilliant at. I mean, Hegel was the first guy to really think systems and complexity in the West. So I apply Hegelian dialectics onto complexity and systems when I work with them. And I think in this case, that's exactly what makes what, what, what is the point here, is, is to look forward to that. So you can say, for example, that we, what we call the pathical narratives, the logical narratives are coherent. The mythical narratives are also coherent, right? But the pathical narrative is never coherent. And the pathical narrative is the location of the story about sex and violence and the subconscious and, you know, the drives and desires of humans, rivalry, envy, you know, all the dirty, nasty things. Every pagan lynch mob throughout history has had its beginning in the pathos. And the pathos is there, needs to be dealt with. And, and I like the model how you do it in Eastern philosophy, because you basically say the pathos is a realm we call Tantra. And you can visit it if you're ready for it. You've got the psyche for it, but it's there because it is part of humanity. It's part of our world we live in. But the world you live in inside the community, inside the membrane, is a world of the logos and the mythos. But the pathos must be there. Christianity and Islam both tried to just outright ban the pathical and, and put it, you know, put it and made a pressure cooker out of it. And that's why constantly in Christian and Muslim societies, the pathical narrative returns all the time and blows everything up. But what we need to keep in mind is that the sex and the violence, even the art, I think, even art, which is never has a solution. Art cannot be propaganda. Art must always be questioning of itself, right? And I, I would place sex, art, and violence into the category of pathos. They're never harmonious. They're never balanced. They're huge forces. They're pharmacon forces, if anything else. And they need to be dealt with exactly that way. Interesting. Now, one of the things that did, I was kind of, actually, when I was reading the book, I stumbled across it again, you know, your formulation of mythos, logos, and pathos, but you left out the fourth one, ethos, 
Well, it's not really a narrative. I always get that question, but ethos is not a narrative. Ethos is what is the right thing to do. And if you think of ethos without morality, right? You think of ethos purely as pure ethics. I'm a Zoroastrian, by the way, converted to Zoroastrian. That's actually really hardcore religion, right? The original monotheistic faith that believes in nothing supernatural. So I can actually believe it. Do you have a fire going all the time in your house? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't have to do animal sacrifices that I got an eternal fire. Exactly, exactly. So I, 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 you know, I, I meditate in front of the Atash Baran. I do all those things Zoroastrians do. But, but why I converted to it was because it has this idea that all the world leading up until now must be accepted as it is, that's called Amor Fati Nietzsche. So the history up until now is a necessity. It's just the way it is. What happened, happened, period. It just happened, accepted. But then the future is contingent. And this is where you and I agree so strongly, because the future is contingent, the future is full of freedom. It's full of us being engaged with the future, co-creating the future. And that's what we're doing as human beings. And that's what we enjoy doing. You know, we're the engineers of the future and we want to be responsible, good engineers. And that's a good thing. But the way to do that is to focus on the fact that you can have a constructive mindset towards the future. You can't do anything about the past. You can have a constructive mindset towards the future. And that's ethics. So ethics is that I identify with my thoughts, identify with my speech, identify with my actions because I do so the actions I make today will determine how I think when I wake up tomorrow morning. So it becomes like a loop of you being engaged in a constructive, middle constructive mindset towards the world. This is called Asha Vohishta in ancient Persian. And I love it because Asha is the same word as Tao in Taoism, like how the world works. The foundation of science lies in Eastern philosophy. How the world works is what Tao means in Chinese. It's the same word as Asha in ancient Persian. Arta in Hindu, in Sanskrit. So Arta, Asha, and, and Tao are the same word. I mean, how the world works. And to be in collaboration with how the world works and constructively get engaged with how the world works makes me an Ashavan, a practitioner of Asha. And what I produce is called Asha Vahishta. And that's what I do every morning. My entire morning meditation is just, what can I possibly do today to be constructively engaged with my fellow human beings in the world? That's all I do as a Zoroastrian every day. And that's the only value I need. And that's the only ethos I need to have. I don't need commandments or anything. I just need that ethos. It's not a narrative in itself. It's actually a result of the narratives, which is why the ethos is there. And so is the topos, the landscape, and the chronos, the time scales. The chronos and the ethos and, and the topos are there as well. But the stories we tell about ourselves are the logos, the mythos, and the pathos. All right. I think we're going to wrap it right there. This has been a really good conversation. Not nearly as argumentative as I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, we agree but, on being fucking gated community communists, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the and, world is going to go after us, Jim, you know. Yeah, protopian empiricist experimentalists, right? Yeah. And I owe it to Kevin Kelly at Wired. He came up with the word protopia, so we should owe it to him to invent it. I think it's a great word. And you know what? When I describe protopianism to my friends in Korea, China, and Japan, they say, yeah, that's how we make the next generation of Toyota electric engines, you know? It's, it's just, it makes sense to any culture. Whereas the utopian dystopian divide, we should get rid of it because it was a Western construct we no longer need. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. <laughs>